Hi coaches, welcome back to another bonus episode of the ITA College Tennis Coaches Podcast. The expert I am interviewing today is Nick Winkleman. Nick is the former Director of Education and Training Systems for Exos, formerly known as Athletes Performance. There he supported many athletes across the NFL, MLB, NBA, national sports organizations and the military. He is currently the head of athletic performance and science for the Irish rugby national team, who are currently ranked number four in the world. He is an internationally recognized speaker on human performance and coaching science. I came across Nick briefly when I was back in Ireland and have followed his career ever since. He recently published a book, The Language of Coaching, with a subtitle, The Art and Science of Teaching Movement. This book combines the best of sports science and holistic coaching methods. In this podcast, Nick takes us through the coaching loop, why cueing is so important for tennis players, and especially for those returning from injury or a long break, why coaches should learn to speak less to their athletes during training and competition, along with lots more valuable information for any college tennis coach. Nick is kindly offering ITA member coaches a 20% discount off his book through June 30th. Just go to www.thelanguageofcoaching.com Click the order now button and use the discount code TLOC20. TLOC20. I hope you get a lot out of this conversation with Nick. Nick Winkleman, thanks so much for coming on the ITA College Tennis Coaches podcast. Uh, Dave, it's an honor. Thanks so much. Okay, well, we're going to get get straight into it here. I have lots of questions for you. Uh, fascinated <laughs> by your work, and and um, I think it's it's very relevant to, to college tennis coaches. So, can you start by taking us through the the coaching loop? Yeah. So, when we look at the the coaching communication loop, uh, when I was writing the book that that it's referenced within the language of coaching. I was very interested in understanding how different forms of communication influenced the way our athletes learn to move. Mm -hmm. And the fact of the matter is we use a lot of different type of communication as we're coaching. So obviously we're saying things before a session, we're saying things during a session, in and around their movement, we're saying things afterwards, we might have a video analysis session. And all these different forms of communication kind of amalgamate and work together positively or, or possibly negatively to influence the way a player learns. And so it was born out of this idea of how do we categorize our language, understanding which type of language we should use and when. Mm-hmm. So within it, it has five components. And I think these will be familiar to most individuals. And I'll go through all five and then maybe I'll give a bit more of a detailed example. So the first one is when we're teaching a movement or a new skill for the first time, or possibly working with a novice, we will describe the action. So for me, my background is in strength and conditioning. So if I was teaching a sprint or a squat, I might say, Dave, we're going to go through the squat. Here's how you set up. Here's the body position I want you in, so on and so forth. And so the description is the long form. It's just simply giving the athlete an orientation to what they're about to do. Usually, though, we know that many people are visual learners or at least prefer to learn visually and that there's a benefit to having this visual piece sit alongside your verbal. So after you describe it, you demonstrate it. And that demonstration might be you as the coach. It might be a fellow athlete. It might even be nowadays on video. All those things are fine. So you kind of have this verbal and this visual 
description, so to speak. And the key thing, though, about that is there's a lot of information in there, Dave. I think we all know that, especially when you're introducing something for the first time. Mm -hmm. And with a complex skill like tennis, we know that these movements are done in, in a fraction of a second. And there's decision making involved. So oftentimes you need to summarize all of that information within your description and demonstration in what we typically call in coaching language a cue. And the cue as I define it within the loop is the last idea that goes in the player's head before they move. So the cue is meant to be this short phrase that establishes focus or mm-hmm. establishes intention. And so once I provide that cue, then the, the fourth phase is the do it. They, they do the movement, they perform it. And I'm watching as a coach and they're experiencing as an athlete, collecting all their subjective experience. Is it going well? Is it not? I'm getting the objective view because I'm observing them, but they're also getting the subjective view because they're experiencing it. Mm -hmm. And then finally, we come to the end of the loop and we have the debrief. So we describe, demonstrate, cue, do, debrief, five phases. And on the debrief, it's exactly that. It's a discussion between the coach and the athlete where the coach is trying to anchor what they observed, again, objectively with what the athlete experienced subjectively. Mm -hmm. And out of that information, we might say, hey, that cue really worked. That cue didn't work. Maybe the athlete didn't focus on anything. It all went in the wash and we got to start mm-hmm. over. Or some other piece of information presents itself. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, out of that debrief, we gain the insights needed to either confirm a cue, update a cue, possibly change it all together, or even it might even encourage us to nudge the drill or the physical environment that we've created. Mm-hmm. And so within the book, I talk about that loop being in two forms, the long loop, which is what we just described, what we just went through, and that's teaching a new movement or working with a novice. But let's be honest, Dave, we don't have to re-describe and re-demonstrate every time we go back to an activity. So then within that, you have the short loop, and that's, if you would, the shorthand that coaches will use insofar as their communication is concerned as they teach athletes all the way up to an elite level. Mm -hmm. And that's the cue, the do, and the debrief. And those three phases work together to map communication to movement. The key thing, which I'm sure we'll get into, is the quantity and the quality of information that you as the coach plug into that cue into that phrase before they move because ultimately that cue which impacts the focus has the single greatest impact on how they move in the present moment and how that inevitably manifests as learning and performance in competition Mm -hmm. hence the reason my book is called the language of coaching gotcha yeah so yeah, there, there's a lot there, but I think that makes perfect sense to, to coaches. And obviously coaches are, are always battling uh, how much information to share and, and when to share it and, and in, in what form. And it's um, that that is the language of coaching and, and trying to tap into that. So so can you take us through the, the differences between internal and external focus and maybe provide some examples for the sport of tennis? Of course. So again, and, and Dave, when you asking me internal, external focus, I want to be very clear. Let's map this mm-hmm. back to our communication loop because I think that's going to help qualify a lot of things in the minds of the listeners. And that is when we talk about internal, external focus, we're talking about cues. Again, those short, brief phrases right before the athlete moves that are, promotes an internal focus 
or promotes an external focus. So let me be very clear. We're talking about the Q level Mm -hmm. of the communication loop. And I'm going to keep going back to that. And so with internal cues, it's kind of what it says on the tin. It's any cue that relates to body movement. So you might be talking about elbow position, shoulder position, wrist position. You might be talking about specific activation of a muscle group. We oftentimes hear that, you know, be tight in the trunk or tight in the core or squeeze your glutes or snap your hips. So internal language is anything to do with the movement process. It is inside the perimeter of the body, so to speak. And so as we reflect with tennis, you know, I play tennis. I've never coached it. But Dave, I'll put that question back on to you. What are some examples of in based on my definition there? of internal cues you would give, let's say, for the serve? What maybe have you heard before as a coach? Yeah, so it might be things such as as keeping the elbow uh, away from from your body. It might be keeping your head up uh, a little bit longer. Um, I I think uh, those two things are are, are cues that I would hear a lot, you know, in terms of internal or body, that that, especially at the college, uh, college level. And the wrist, am I correct in saying that the wrist and, and wrist motion is talked about quite a bit in various aspects of tennis, or am I making that up? No, I mean, wrist a little less these days. Um, I think that that was the case, uh, but the wrist is 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 a little <laughs> firmer. I mean, as we get into the pronation side of, of the serve, uh, the, the wrist yeah. becomes more more prevalent. But um, no, I, I don't think in terms of an internal cue, I don't think a lot of coaches, maybe at the younger ages, they talk about more about that. But I think um, at, at this level, uh, not so much. Okay, beautiful. So the key thing is we have these key elements of, of body movement that relate to our given skills and any internal language we use to convey that technicality, in this case, the shoulder or the elbow is what we might call an internal cue. On the flip side, then we have an external cue and an external cue is instead of talking about the movement process or the body itself, We're talking about the impact the body is having on the physical environment or the goal of the movement. And so the second we leave the body in the the game of tennis, if the cue relates to the racket, if the cue relates to the ball, Mm. if the cue relates to contact of racket on ball, uh, trajectory of ball possibly over the net, or even more so endpoint, where we want the ball to land and possibly the spin that it should have similar to the way we talk about the spin in baseball. These are all external cues. And what we're assuming with an external cue is, okay, as long as I can tell the person where, let's say, the swing motion should be, or to focus on the ball coming in, or to focus on the ball coming off the racket, I'm going to trust, as long as I can give a clear intention and a clear focus on the outcome, that the body will be able to organize itself. Oftentimes they coordinate itself to achieve that outcome as long as the focus, as long as the cue is clear. Think of it similar to putting an address uh, in a GPS unit. You put the right address in the GPS unit, Mm -hmm. the car will guide you to that address. You put the wrong address in, you're not going to get there. So an external cue is dependent on you putting the right goal in the mind of the player, and then we are entrusting the body to achieve that goal. So if we go back to the serve then, Dave, what are some mm-hmm. examples of, of external cues you might have heard or used yourself around the serve? So would that be like <clears throat> um, trying to reach as high as possible? Um, Bingo. Yeah. yeah. Scratch the sky. 
Scrap. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's what a good else? one. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it might be um, something along the lines of, of uh, you know, uh, around rhythm as well. You know, yes. um, slow to fast. You know, the, the the serve motion usually starts slow and controlled, and then builds up to something more rapid. So it's it's maybe you know a, a train taking off from the station or something along those lines. Yeah. So in the, in that case, what you've done there is you've used a rhythm cue, mm -hmm. slow to fast. You didn't reference the body, but you gave my body a goal to achieve to move my rhythm from slow to fast. Even then, you might have articulated that to put a visual in my mind. So you talked about a, a train leaving the station or even possibly a jet gradually taking off. Mm. And in that case, you used an analogy. And what you did is you took something that was familiar to them that is born out of the literal world. I can watch a train take off. I can watch an airplane take off. And because I've experienced that and I've seen that, and I can relate to that, I can take that familiar object and I can place it in my mind and use that almost like a metronome if you would, mm -hmm. to guide how the movement takes form. And so when we talk about external cues, we oftentimes will also refer to analogies because analogies are physical environmental objects like a train. So they're outside the body, but they're just manifested in the mind. And I know there's been a lot of great work in tennis on visualization. Mm -hmm. So whether we use an external cue that references the literal real world or an analogy that references the figurative real world, in terms of the brain, we're still referencing something outside the body that is real that I can organize my movement against mm -hmm. rather than just thinking about the movement itself. And so hopefully that clarifies this whole idea of internal versus external. And let's just give the punchline, Dave, to the listeners. The reality is at this point, the first major study that looked at internal versus external cueing, as we typically call it, which causes internal and external focus on the side of the athlete that first paper was done in 1998 since then last time i looked at my reference list there's well over 160 papers on this and what people have to understand is young or old able-bodied or those possibly with physical or mental disabilities simple skills such as balance to highly complex skills like tennis golf reactionary skills possibly reacting to a gun if it's a sprint or even an open field sport like rugby the one that i work in and everything in between strength training jumping sprinting and agility consistently we're talking about 99 plus percent of these papers show that when you want to support performance right now but you want to coach in a way that supports performance and thus learning in the long term notably in a competitive forum we want to use external cues mm -hmm. and so many people hear that and it takes a little bit of a gasp like you're telling me i'm supposed to coach a technical sport like tennis but i'm not supposed to use internal cues ah we're not saying that dave this is where we got to go back to the coaching communication loop mm -hmm. here's what we have to understand discussing technical language or what we're calling now internal language is perfectly fine as long as it's done in that movement description or in that movement debrief. What we want to do, though, is always have a partition between the internal language and the physical performance of the movement itself. We define that already mm -hmm. as the cue. And the evidence, and even if you investigate your own intuition, Dave, it is clear that when we empower the mind with the right external focus or the right analogy, we hide technical complexity 
inside a short phrase that creates a picture, that creates a feeling that the body can bring to light in the fast, complex motions that are tennis. Mm -hmm. And this is true of every other sport. It is not unique to any one of them because movement is movement is movement. So I use internal language all the time when I'm doing video analysis, when I'm discussing error identification, Mm -hmm. even when we're trying to look to make a small correction. But it's kind of like if you were working with me, Dave, and we're working on sprinting, let's say, and you're not getting enough hip extension, and thus you're not maximizing the force into the ground, I might say, Dave, I need you to get more hip extension. To do that now, right, insert cue here, Mm -hmm. I want you to focus on exploding off the ground. Or Dave, you now live in Phoenix, Arizona, so I might say, I want you to imagine there is a rattlesnake (laughs) two feet behind you, ready to strike, put their two-inch teeth into your ankle <laughs> see what i'm doing here yeah. get off the line and i here's here's the, here's the punchline dave beat the bite mm-hmm. beat the bite look at what i've done there i put a picture mm-hmm. with emotion is the technical insights there you better believe the technical insights are there but you don't need to know about how the processor chip in your phone works to use your iphone mm-hmm. but oftentimes we forget that behaviorally as coaches And we assume that their knowledge of the movement they are performing needs to be as good as ours. Mm -hmm. But let me be very clear. If knowledge is what it required to perform these complex tasks, coaches would be the best movers. And Dave, we are not (laughs) the best movers. So we have to learn to speak the language of the body, the language of movement, which is what external cues and analogies provide. Mm -hmm. And so we can dig into that more, but but this is – this is not dogmatic. This is not saying that internal language doesn't have a role, but it's understanding when internal language should be used mm-hmm. and when external language should be used, which is why the coaching communication loop is so important. It gives each one of those a home. Right. No, that makes perfect sense. And, and you can speak for yourself there, Nick, in terms of movement. I still move great. So, um, <laughs> what? so, so, do, so do I, but you know, <laughs> I live- um so so can you take us through then the the continuum of coaching cues and and kind of where tennis coaches want to sit on that continuum most of the time beautiful beautiful so if you get into the research as we've been referencing here dave you know it's oftentimes dichotomous or or binary and we say internal versus external but as someone who even though I, i got my phd in the topic I've been living this stuff for over 15 years. And so, so nothing comes out of my mouth or into the book or into my coaching sessions that hasn't passed both, let's say, the academic and the practical mm-hmm. rigor. And what I quickly realized as a coach, and the coaches listening will know this themselves, that there are many shades of internal cues and many shades of external cues. But to simplify it, I, I have brought it into, again, five different categories. Okay, And I think the best way to to visualize this as a listener without having the model in front of you is like the zoom lens on a camera. And so we can zoom that camera all the way in to the micro unit of movement and zoom it all the way out to the macro execution or macro goal of a movement. And then there's these steps along the way. So let's start kind of zoomed all the way in in in, in the spirit of – you know, the, the, the cartoon my kids still love to watch, the school bus one where they go into the body and circulate around. We'll zoom all in because Mrs. Frizzle's class, if I, if I have her name right. And so we start then with what I call a narrow internal cue. 
And you probably can guess what that is, but a narrow internal cue is where the, the cue right before the movement, and this means you're asking them to actively think about this while they move. Let's continue to be clear about that, is where you ask them to actively think about the motion of a single joint or the action of a single muscle. So if you were telling me, hey, I need you to extend your elbow more, I need you to flex your elbow more, I need you to have more internal rotation here, or I need you to have more snap at this joint there. These are what we would call narrow internal cues. And, and I'll just put my cards on the table. That is going to be the most detrimental type of cueing, notably most detrimental type of internal cueing, mm. because you are trying to describe a complex multi-joint movement through the lens of only one part. Right. Mm -hmm. And so imagine you only had one key on your keyboard. You're not going to be able to get very far, but that's fundamentally what you're doing to that athlete. You're asking them prioritize the motion of that one joint above all the partner joints involved in executing a very complex maneuver. And, and this is where it's helpful to understand about attention. And that again, intuitively, Dave, we all, all know this. I think you said you have children as well before we got on the call here. Mm -hmm. Attention is a limited capacity resource, <laughs> notably in children, but most certainly still for adults. And so when you ask someone to focus on elbow position, but they're still performing a movement that requires the whole body, there's almost like this rapid switching that has to go on between the execution of the whole and the management of the micro. And what that serves to do, if the person commits to making that rapid switch is it constrains the body, limiting the overall efficiency of the movement pattern. And that's notably expressed with these narrow internal cues. Okay? Mm. But what we can then do is we can zoom out of that a little bit and get into what we call a broad internal cue. So a broad internal cue doesn't make a comment about one joint or one muscle, but rather a collection of joints and a collection of muscles that we would call a limb or a body area. So it might be, hey, I need your arm to go here. I need your leg to go there. I need your trunk to be in this position or that position. Mm -hmm. So we're not necessarily talking about any one joint. And so why do I believe that's less detrimental? Well, we're allowing more control on the side of the athlete. We're not telling them how to micromanage head, shoulders, knees, and toes. But we still are constraining their movement to that limb. And, and if I'm talking about even the serve – Sure, the right arm, if I'm right-handed, is important, but I still need the entire lower body and trunk to play in that symphony. Mm -hmm. And if I overemphasize just that limb, am I possibly drowning out some of the other players in the holistic coordination of the movement? I think intuition and science would say yes. The key thing, though, is I think they're going to be less detrimental, personally. Has that research been done? No. And that's part of the reason that I've made this continuum if you would in the book so clear so that researchers can actually go out and possibly validate mm. some of these ideas and the new ones the the third type of cue then is what i call the hybrid in the hybrid cue is where i think we start to get out of the danger zone when it comes to short-term performance and long-term learning and so the hybrid is where you orient the body to the environment so let's if i can 
I don't know tennis well enough to give you authentic examples. Mm-hmm. So let me use one. We still we still sprint in tennis forward. Mm-hmm. So let me use a very simple sprinting example. So narrow internal cue for sprinting is extend the hip or extend the knee. Broad internal cue for sprinting would be drive your leg back. Hybrid cue for sprinting would be drive your leg into the ground. See mm-hmm. what I've done there? Mm-hmm. I've now said drive the leg, but I've, I've oriented it to an external factor, in this case, the ground. So drive your leg into the ground. And so if you are orienting the body to an environmental piece, I'm not telling you how to move any one of those joints. I'm saying get this general part of your body and orient it to this external feature. Mm -hmm. And again, that specific type of cue has not been tested, but I've tested it practically thousands of times. And I think as long as the last word in the cue orients them to an external feature moving forward then that becomes the focus point not necessarily the steps leading up to it i.e in my case the leg going back Mm -hmm. so i'm sure there's plenty of cases where we make the connection between the arm and the racket or possibly the body position and where it is on the court Mm -hmm. i think we start to get into a safer place from a cueing perspective so that's three number four then is what we call a close external cue. So a close external cue is exactly what it sounds like. It's focusing on the goal of the movement or a feature of the environment important to achieving that goal that is close to me. So I'm sure most people on the call uh, listening in can guess what that is, is in tennis. It's gonna be the racket. Mm-hmm. So focusing on the racket, the motion of the racket, the connection of the racket to the ball itself. These are going to be things that are quite close to me. And we know that when we are working with novice and intermediate athletes in accuracy-based sports, so that's going to be golf, tennis, baseball, so on and so forth, that close external cues are really important to start with because it implicitly allows the athlete to start to orient the action of their body to the action of the implement. And this is equally important in golf as it is in tennis, for example. Inevitably, though, and Dave, I'd love your insight here. Mm-hmm. As someone becomes more and more elite, the racket almost starts to become part of the body itself. Definitely. It becomes an yeah. extension of the body. And whether or not, obviously, that's not literally happening. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not creating these, these, these biomechanical <laughs> tennis players. Yet, okay, (laughs) however, I think the lived experience of the tennis player, and it would be the same in baseball, in golf, is this becomes an extension of them. And so if that were true, we'd see evidence that the longer I play my sport and the better I get, the more the racket starts to operate like an internal cue because it almost becomes part of the movement. Mm. And guess what we know? That there is a lot of good evidence to support that idea. That as I become better, my focus needs to start to be on the ultimate end goal, which is trajectory and endpoint of ball. Mm-hmm. That my mind is no longer thinking about any of the starting of the swing, mid-swing, or late into contact, but rather my mental optic, my mental intention is completely embedded in the ultimate outcome that movement is meant to achieve, which likely with the level you're working at and, and, and above in, a, in an elite professional would be endpoint of ball. Mm-hmm. And where we want it to land, spin off, and so on and so forth. And so there's not evidence necessarily to say that a close external cue is bad for elite, 
But there is evidence to say that early on, starting with close external cues as you're teaching and then moving out to a farther external cue and kind of surfing that zoom lens in between those two, it starts to favor farther away for elite and favor closer to for the novice. But there's not enough evidence to make a black and white statement there. Mm -hmm. And so I think hopefully as everyone's listening, like, wow, that that pretty much surfs exactly the, the full continuum of the type of language one could use when they're referencing the literal body moving in the literal world. The, the final one, if you want to call it the six, the, the bonus mm-hmm. cue, which is its own world by itself, is the analogy. Right. And the analogy goes from the literal to the figurative. But still, insofar as the mind is concerned, our, our visual cortex is massive. It allows us to bring in a digital matrix-type idea uploaded into the mind. And here's the key phrase, move as if. Move as if Mm. the racket was the train coming out of the station. Move as if there was a wall in front of you. Move as if there was a cliff behind you. Move as if you had to serve down a hallway if they're drifting the racket too far out to the right, for example. Mm -hmm. So these are the kind of things that we can do. And I believe as a coach and as an athlete, if you think back to the best coaches you have ever had, they made, they challenged you, but you weren't challenged to understand them. Mm. I think that's a key point here. You remember how your coach coached more than what they coached. And I would argue embedded in that how they were storytellers. Mm-hmm. They, cre- they, they, un- they took the burden of the complexity and as Einstein said, made it as simple as they could, no simpler. And they were able to phrase that in a way that you connected with because they used age appropriate, technically specific language that put the right picture in your mind mm-hmm. that still allowed you to be holistic in the execution of a movement, but nudge you mm-hmm. more on the path that you needed to be on. And we haven't brought his name up. But you know who nailed this in 1974 is Timothy Galway. Mm. The inner game of tennis to this day, in my opinion, is the single best book ever written on coaching full stop. That's why he is pro thousands (laughs) of words in my book. Thousands of words are given to Timothy Galway Mm. in his work because I'm not looking to reinvent the wheel without any of the science. He nailed it back then. And so my goal is actually to be an extension of, of the work he's done mm-hmm. and bring it to life with the models and the systems that coaches can bring forward. Because Dave, we can tell a coach, you need, to, you need to say less and you need to use language that puts pictures in the mind that are goal-oriented. That's fine, they might believe us, mm-hmm. but then when they get on the court, and you know how you were like, oh, scratch the sky, I hadn't thought of that. Well, how do we help that coach think of the cue that is on offer but simply, it's never popped into their mind. Right. And that's what the goal of my book is, is, to take the great work of Galway from 74, who already, <laughs> in my opinion, had the answers, mm-hmm. and bring it forward into the modern day with the solutions that can help coaches change their behavior to meet what he outlined eloquently in his book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow, there, there's a lot. It's really cool to hear that <clears throat> that, that book, a tennis book, has, has influenced your work so so greatly. And I know it's it's influenced people in, in so many areas, not just in sports and business as well. Yes. It's it's an amazing book and, and definitely encourage coaches to to read it. I mean, there, there's there's so much there, <laughs> Nick, that that uh, I'd like to unpack. I mean, there's um 
you know, we, we as, as college tennis coaches were, it's quite unique. Well, well, firstly, to go back to that point about simplicity, um, you know, I think coaches in general, um, you know, we're looking to the experts all the time or those that are working with the, the high level, um, you know, athletes or the best in the world. And, and we go and we witness their coaching and we're like, oh, that, that wasn't, you know, we're expecting some, I don't know, like some work, we're, we're getting let behind the, the, the velvet rope there. And we're going to see some gold magic that we've never heard before. And I think a lot of coaches come away and they're like, that was quite simple. And they're, they're kind of underwhelmed, not really understanding, uh, the power in that simplicity. W- would you agree with that? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's, we, we've talked so far around, when to communicate mm-hmm. and even what what to say possibly looking at our internal to external continuum but we haven't talked about how much to say mm. and i think intuitively the great coaches come to the same conclusion that we can only focus reasonably on one thing at a time and frankly from a learning perspective we can really only overcome probably one major mechanical error or problem at a time. And if we invest in that and really get good at that and helping the athlete or the player overcome it, that that's going to lead to far more stable changes long-term mm-hmm. than trying to do everything at once mm-hmm. or going into a session and what I call machine gun queuing, where you cue everything <laughs> that moves the wrong way rather than going in and saying, well, I know this player really well and the movement quote unquote errors I'm observing are possibly a phenomenon of them being tired. They had a poor night's rest, maybe in college it's finals week, and they just need the day off Mm. versus trying to go in there with your your textbook of cues and say, no, we got to try to change everything. When the reality is, had you given them the day off, they come back refreshed. All of a sudden, that same mover returns. What was a red herring yesterday has now gone away. And we can go back to focusing on that one thing and mm-hmm. building learning one cue, you know, or as I say to my daughter, when we're building Legos, one brick at a time. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, I mean, you, you've obviously experienced this in, in your coaching career as well, Nick, but, you know, as we're starting out as coaches, we, we look around and, and we see, you know, how, well, we think about maybe how we were coached, but we also look at those, those uh, other coaches, maybe within our, in our conference, within our region or, or at national events or whatever it is. And, and we see how they're coaching and a lot of coaches are giving a huge amount of feedback and in tennis, we're, we're not like a team sport where the player can potentially drown out the the voice of the coach and yeah. and not not be uh, overly influenced by them especially during competition but in, in college tennis the the coach can sit on the the sideline with the player during the changeovers and and uh, and I was guilty of this at times as well and and providing our our players with too much information we're we're processing it all in our heads and we want to just give it all back to them and and believe that they're going to be able to implement it but what advice would you have for coaches to to kind of take a step back um, and and not only recognize that that that's potentially the wrong way to go about coaching, um, that it's not allowing their their players reach their their full potential, but also to 
kind of avoid that that I guess societal pressure that that people yeah. in the crowd are watching and they're going well why why isn't why isn't Dave coaching more he's not he's not doing yeah. his job you know how how do we yeah. how do we push back uh, the you know against those kind of societal norms or expectations yeah Oh, they're, they're <laughs> there's a lot there's a lot in there Dave there's a lot yeah. in there but let me try to bring some layers to it so the first thing I would say is coaches we cannot define ourselves by what we say but by what we see and that means that we define ourselves by saying a lot of good things saying many good things and, and having them sound good to us <laughs> and mm-hmm. sound good to the parent <laughs> and to the people watching but if all that saying doesn't result in better seeing by that means I'm not seeing an improvement. I'm not seeing fun. I'm not seeing enjoyment. I'm not seeing commitment. Ultimately, as, uh, as Mr. Wooden said, I have not taught until they've learned. Learning is something the player needs to own. Mm. I can provide a process for it, but ultimately they need to own it. And so that's what I mean. We need to not define ourselves by what we say, but by what we see. Are we actually making an improvement? And if we focus our intention on that improvement, We will come to so many of the conclusions, Dave, you and I are talking about. So one of them is how much we should say. Let's go, let's go back to your question then on feedback. Mm-hmm. And I think you, you drew a little bit of a nuanced line there of feedback possibly during competition and then feedback during training. And maybe we can comment on those mm-hmm. because they are related. Yep. To kick it off, though, let me tell a short story. I don't know how well. I don't know if, if it's completely true, but it's it's a known story and one that I think illustrates the point brilliantly, even if it's not completely true. And it's about <laughs> Einstein. And it's said that Einstein, uh, like any probably brilliant person would, when trying to learn something for the first time, went and engaged with a coach. So he was learning how to golf. Mm-hmm. And apparently he went and got himself a golf professional to help him out. And we can picture Einstein and his hair and his probably well-dressed but a little bit frazzled attitude. He's on the driving range and he has this coach. And apparently this coach starts to walk him through his stance, his backswing, his downswing, his body position, his head position. And the story goes that Einstein says, stop. And he walks over to the bag and he reaches in and he grabs as many balls as he can. And he says, and he tosses them and he tosses them at the coach and we can just envision the shock on on the coach's mind and he says this is what you are doing to me if i throw you one ball you will catch it if i throw you all of them you will catch none give me one thing to focus on and i just i love those kind of anecdotes because it takes us decades and decades of research Right, to go back to what we know is something just so intuitive. It's lived in our behavior and our experience every day. It's the reason you turn the radio down when you get into traffic. It's the reason you put your sandwich down when you hear horns honking in the car. And that is we can only focus our attention on one thing at a time. Mm. People, Dave, oftentimes confuse memory with attention. They're not the same thing. I phrase it like this. Think of memory like a dark room, okay? You cannot see. And that dark room can handle a certain number of objects. Let's say seven objects. So we have a dark room with seven objects. And if I want a new object in that dark room, I have to take one out and I put a new one in. The only way that I can see the objects in that dark room is with a flashlight. 
But guess what? I only have one flashlight. So I can only flash that light on one of those objects at a time. Mm -hmm. So the dark room in its fixed size of the amount of things that can go in there, that's your short-term memory. That flashlight, that's your attention. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm playing a sport, sure, I might be able to remember the five things you told me on that 60-second or 90-second break. But I can only feasibly think or focus on any one of them one at a time, one instant, one moment at a time. So if you gave me five, three, even two things to work on for my serve, for example, I'm going to either have to try to flip through the two of them, the three of them, the five of them, or I'm going to have to abandon all of them to get to one, or I might just throw it all out the door, as you said earlier, Mm -hmm. and just focus on whatever I'd like to, which might be nothing at all, or possibly the wrong thing. Mm. So ultimately, as a coach, when we're giving feedback, we might be talking about a number of things. But the challenge I put to coaches is this, how do you get to the one thing? Mm. What is the one thing that's going to make the next one rep better? And so from a philosophy perspective, that's, I believe, how training should be managed. We should have a one-thing ethos, a mm-hmm. one-thing mentality. To do that, though, especially in a game like tennis, it requires preparation by the coaches. And I know everyone listens absolutely prepares for their sessions. But here's what I mean by preparation. It's understanding the specific skills you're going to work on that, in that session. But even within those, it's probably prioritizing the skills from most important to least important. And then it's having a good understanding, a clinical understanding at the level of the coach within each of those skills. What's the one thing? What's the key performance indicator that if improved, will take that skill to the next level? Mm. And it could have to do with decision-making. It could have to do with technical execution and everything in between. And what the coach might realize is, okay, for these three skills over there, it's actually strength and mobility. That's my SNC coach's responsibility or things I'm going to be able to do off the court. But these three skills over here, now that, that actually relates to the technique. Hmm. They have the ability to do it. They're just not. And so in this session now, I'm going to focus on those three technical skills. And I've identified the one thing involved in each of those that if corrected, that coach feels will make a significant difference. Mm-hmm. And so guess what? When I go into that next session, that becomes my bandwidth. That becomes my mental constraint as a coach. I know that other little things might pop up. And sure, if they're extreme issues, I might comment on them. But at the end of the day, there's no fixed way to move. The beauty of movement is that it is diverse. It is variable. So in the coach's mind, they should have identified a big rock, a real big thing that if corrected is going to make a difference. Mm-hmm. And that's where they target their attention and therefore their athlete's intention mm. with their language and so after that debrief is done how did you feel here's what i saw so on and so forth okay how do we get back to that one thing how can we involve the athlete in identifying the cue possibly themselves or helping them come up with one and so it still comes back to now finally then how often do i need to go at that that cue how often do i need to go at that feedback if we go back to early research they would tell you things like giving feedback 30 to 50% of the time. So either every other rep 
or maybe every third rep. But learning is not as fixed as that recommendation. Mm -hmm. So my suggestion is this. You cue as often as they need a reminder, no more, no less. And always cue, your frequency of cueing should be in service of their own self-correction and their own self-exploration. So if I give a cue and it makes a little bit of a difference, Dave, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna remind them until I start to see that change flatline mm-hmm. or possibly see them get worse. That might happen within one session, within a couple sets. They might actually be able to ride out one cue for an entire training session before needing to be reminded. And what I'm allowing them to do is start to integrate those words, integrate that intention, and start to own the change. So I can't tell anyone how often they should give feedback, but as long as they pay attention to what they see and they pay attention to the echo of their impact, they can continue to nurture that relationship to only intervene as often as needed. Hmm. And I'll put a visual in the, the listener's mind to help them think of this. I want you to imagine we're walking on a trail and that trail is flanked to the left and to the right by a cliff's edge. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now in my mind, that trail represents the bandwidth that I want my player to stay within. That could be, let's say in your mind for the serve, I have a certain bandwidth of how high I want them to contact the ball. I'm just making this up. Mm-hmm. And that bandwidth of low to high represents the width of my walking trail. And I then say to myself, I'm only going to come in and cue. I'm only going to come in and question. I'm only going to come in and nudge. When that player shifts out of my bandwidth, within our mental thought experiment is them fundamentally about to go over the cliff's edge. Mm -hmm. So we don't want our athletes to go over the cliff's edge. But if we don't allow them to navigate that trail, if we don't allow them to have flexibility in their learning and their trial and error, they will not own it. And thus, we will be teaching or think we are teaching but they will not be the one learning. So that's why it goes back to what I said. It's not about what you say. It's about what you see. Mm-hmm. And you have to draw those two connections together. Uh, very good. And, and so the, I mean, it obviously requires a, a lot of discipline on behalf of the coach as well. To, yeah, I mean, it's, it really is. But, but um, so when you're preparing for a coaching session, uh, so the night before you're preparing, you've identified that one thing. Are you already thinking about what analogies you'd like to share with, with that player? Or are you waiting, or do you have some in your mind and then you're working through, um, you know, what analogies potentially to use with the athlete? Are you coming and just kind of giving them those analogies or does it depend on how well you know the player, you know, things like that? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a great, it's a great question. And I think it's a, it's an and rather than an or Mm -hmm. answer on my part. And that is early on. If you're not familiar with creating novel external cues, if you're not familiar with creating analogies, this is not something that you've ever done or thought about before, I'll be honest, it's very difficult to develop that behavior on stage. It's kind of like practicing for a play while you're actually performing it live. That's just not how most people are going to want to have their first show go. Mm -hmm. And so what I try to tell people is if you focus on creating cues when you have the time, you'll find it easier to come up with them when you don't. 
which is in the moment that an athlete is staring you in the face. (laughs) And so very early on, if I have my plan in front of me, yes, ideally I would start to make a list of shorthand cues. But let's be honest, when we're working with someone for the first time, we haven't developed that relationship to know necessarily their preferences, Mm -hmm. what they're familiar with. So we might need to build some of that rapport. And what I like to say is understand their language locker. What are the phrases that they like to use? How old are they? All these things feed in to the way I might try to communicate with them. But over time, going back to the example we gave on the one thing, if I start to understand their movement and I start to understand them as a person, I can recall on one hand, hey, what cues did I come up with? that seemed to work really well last session. Let's make sure we write those down. But equally, if there was an error that we observed or were working on, and I tried to cue it, but things were not working. I mean, Dave, we've all had those sessions. Mm -hmm. And you're pulling your hair out. You're calling your other coaches. You're like, what's going on? And oftentimes, like, the athlete just doesn't get it. Mm -hmm. But sure, that's part of it, but maybe part of it is us as well. So in that specific example, are you giving yourself the time to possibly explore creatively analogies and external cues that you could then have fresh in the mind for the next session? So I think it's a matter of preparing. Mm -hmm. And then more you prepare, the better you'll be able to deploy them in the live setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way I bring this to life though with my own players is what I call the WWH. And I think this applies universally to any coaching session. And that is not only do you need to be disciplined in how you are preparing for that session, but also share that discipline and where that focus is gonna be with the athlete. Because I think if the athlete knows that there's better intention and precision and purpose behind the session, that's going to help the ends that both coach and athlete are trying to achieve. So the WWH is, what are we doing today? The what's the basic one? It's the outline of the session. Here's the warm-up, here's the drill, so on and so forth. So they have an expectation of what's about to happen. Why are we going to do this? So that's just simply starting to reinforce how this selection of drills, this ordering, this conditioning session is going to serve the ultimate KPIs that that coach and player has agreed on. And for certain sports, especially like you said, one-on-one individual sports, maybe you do this in part weekly and then have a subversion of it daily. But in team sports, the WWH is before every session. But then that final one, the H, is the key for me. How are we going to do that? And the how is the calibration of focus. Okay, Dave, today we are going through these three drills. But in all of these drills, we did it in our video analysis session the other day, we're going to be focusing on insert portion of technique here. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is going to be the key area that we are going to hone in on. And so you know your cues. We've been working on this in the video session, and you started to nail it in the last session. In fact, Dave, what were those cues that seemed to work well for you? See what I've done here? I now start a rapport, start a little bit of an interaction. Okay, that's where our headspace needs to be. And so what I'm now going to do through the remainder of that session is I'm going to be an echo of that. I'm going to be a mirror of that. And when I think that possibly the potency of a cue is running dry or that we need to refresh focus, maybe a little bit of motivation or novelty is being lost so they're mentally drifting, I might step in because they're falling off my cliff's edge until they're back on the path. Mm -hmm. But what we've done there is through our preparation, 
the what, why, and how allows that preparation to be transmitted to the player, allowing us to truly collaborate on their learning experience. Mm. Okay. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> there's a lot there. You're inspiring me to want to go back to coaching, Nick. This is, uh, <laughs> this is great stuff. Um, you, you talk in your work as well about, about how important cue, obviously cueing is important all the time, but, but especially for athletes returning from injury. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, there's, I mean, any, I'm sure everyone listening has had an injury at some point in their life. And so when we get injured, what we notice behaviorally with the athletes and, and coming from rugby and American football, you know, big injuries we'd see oftentimes are hamstrings. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so it's that classic thing of you, you know, if you go watch the warm up of any rugby team or any American football team, you know who has done their hamstring at some point. They're the guy that's constantly kind of pitter pattering and then leaning on that one leg and just rubbing the hamstring mm-hmm. as if their hand has some kind of analgesic type of a factor <laughs> and it will magically protect them from hurting it again. So you laugh because it's familiar. You mm-hmm. know this. And it's the pitcher grabbing the elbow. It's probably the tennis player grabbing the elbow or the shoulder, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And so we know that we're already predisposed to focus on that one muscle or that joint, the site of the injury. So what, what have we been talking about now for an hour? We've been talking about cues. We've talked about the kind of cues, the kind of focus that disrupts performance. Well, it's those internal cues, notably those narrow internal cues. So what does injury by its very design cause people to do? It causes them to go inward and narrowly focus on the site of the injury. And so Rob Gray, who I think if you like this information, people listening in should look up. Rob Gray's at Arizona State University. They'd be great to connect you Mm -hmm. and him together. I think you'd love his work. He's done a lot in baseball. And he has shown, he has a way, we don't need to get into the details, but he has a way of naturalistically, kind of National Geographic style, interrogating what someone is focusing on while they perform complex movements. So he took elite hitters from baseball and elite pitchers. The hitters had recovered from knee surgery and the pitchers had recovered from elbow surgery. And what he was able to find is when he took them and compared them to elite hitters and pitchers who hadn't had that injury, that they actually spent more time focusing on the area of injury while they were performing that specific skill which is exactly intuitively what we would expect, but nobody prior to him had actually researched that. So here's now what we know to summarize. We know that when you get an injury, you're more inclined to focus narrowly and internally on that injury. Mm -hmm. We also know that on on the whole, I should say, I don't want to make an overgeneralization here, but on the whole, strength conditioning coaches and physical therapists tend to be biased towards more internal language than they are external language when they are coaching. This is notably true in physical therapy because guess what? You come in with an isolated problem. It's likely that a lot of the language is going to be in and around that problem, i.e. narrow internal cues. So now you have an athlete that's already predisposed to think about the injury. You possibly, let me emphasize that, have a physical therapist and strength coach who are also bringing heightened attention in their language and their focus to that injury. And now we have someone who's now since recovered physically. But I would ask the question, have they recovered 
mentally? Mm. And have we started to develop the mental structures, i.e. focus and intention during movement that actually map to the focus intention one needs to optimize and regain coordination, especially under the stress of competition. Add then the final ingredient that injured or not, when people are under stress or under pressure, there's a natural predisposition to go inward and try to control technique, which seems to be enhanced if your coach primarily used internal language. Mm. So now you have a perfect storm of a person who already was coached that way, now has an injury that heightens it, now as a physical therapist that focuses on it, now they're coming back in and they are unbelievably frustrated, not because their body can't do it anymore, but that mind-body connection to outcome in a competitive forum seems to be challenging them more than it ever did prior to the injury. And while what I'm sharing is not the complete story by any means, it is a critical part of it. Mm-hmm. And it's oftentimes a part that is not fully understood, but it is so simple to correct in the way the physical therapist and the strength coach and the sport coach work together to bring the mind alongside the body into the representative state, i.e. external focus and analogy. Fix the injury, but it doesn't mean you have to focus on the injury mm-hmm. as the athlete. If anything, it's the opposite. Yeah. So, no, I mean, I think we've seen an increase in injuries in in the tennis world over the last couple of decades, for sure. And at any one time, coaches probably have one or two players that that are are coming back from injury or dealing with some type of injury. So would would you encourage coaches to share Rob Gray's work with their strength and conditioning coach and and their athletic trainer? Is that that something that's that's out there a lot? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's. The reality is there's a number of, from a research perspective, mm-hmm. I could say I could send you a long list of, of select resources that you could share with the listeners that they can share with their strength coaches mm. and physical therapists. But mm. then the reality is there, there's two books on the topic. You have, well, three books to say. Inner Game of Tennis, I would say laid down the fundamentals in a very accessible way. Mm-hmm. Then you have book number two, Attention and Motor Skill Learning. Attention and Motor Skill Learning, written by Dr. Gabrielle Wolf. She's at UNLV. She's done quite a bit in tennis as well as golf. And she's the, if I, some people call me the king of cues, I call her the queen of cues because she's the one that really started this, this industry, this, this academic research track with her first paper in 1998. And then come forward to 2020, you have my book, The Language of Coaching, which I believe takes the accessibility of Galway's work and the academic rigor of Uh, Wolf's work and puts them together then with my own spin Mm -hmm. on it to bring models to the world that can be equally shared to your sport coach, your physical therapist, and your strength coach. Great. No, those are, are fantastic resources. I'll definitely include those in, in the notes to the coaches and in the introduction as well. So um, well, I know we're coming up against our time here, Nick, but is there one question that I should have asked you that, that I've missed as it relates to coaching tennis players? there's one, there's one probably, and I don't think you necessarily should have asked it, but it's one that I've only been recently Mm -hmm. asking myself, asking myself. And that is, are are cues only good for improving movement Mm. or do they do something else? And I've only recently come to appreciate that the way we cue and the way we communicate in general 
while at first glance it is anchored to improving the movement, we cannot forget the mover, the person inside the player doing the moving. And for them, their experience of our language and its impact on the movement has a psychological footprint as much as it does a physical one. And I find that when we start to get into this area and you improve your ability to connect with your player, with your athlete, through your communication, not only are you building a better mover, but you are building a better relationship, a better connection in the process. And to illustrate this, I just want to share a story that I, I, I do in most of these podcasts that I think brings it all together, showing that cues are far more than just little phrases to nudge motion. And so when I was first becoming a strength conditioning coach, I worked as a personal trainer. And I had a client come in, and like any personal trainer, you sit down and you do an initial intake. You try to build a little bit of rapport. You understand goals. You understand likes and dislikes, any possible injuries, so on and so forth. And the person I had in that day, when I asked him, what is your goal? He said, what you have to understand about me, Nick, is my son, he's five, is the most important thing in my life. Now, mind you, at the time I was a college student, so I, I, I couldn't, I understood what he said, mm -hmm. but I can't, I couldn't have resonated with it the same way it does now as a father of two. Right. And so he says, Nick, I have this, this son, he's five, and my wife and I were separated, and, and my, my son lives with my wife, and my son has a poster of Superman on the wall. And my son looks up to Superman. He is a superhero, obviously, but it's far more to my little boy right now. And my goal is very simple, to do everything I can to be Superman for my son. And it was evident that there was a lot of truth, there was a lot of pain, there was a lot of reflection behind this man's comment. And that physical fitness was part of his path, maybe even part of his healing, to being that for his son. And so it was a powerful statement and a novel one. You don't expect most people to talk about a Superman poster <laughs> when you ask them what their goal is ahead of a, of a, a series of personal training sessions. <laughs> but there it is for you. And so fast forward, we're in our second or third session, and we're working on a single leg RDL. Mm -hmm. And so he has two dumbbells in his hand. He's on one leg, legs fairly straight. And it's almost like his body's meant to go down like a teeter-totter. And it's tough for people to do that. You're supposed to stay nice and long, nice and flat, neutral spine. But he was all over the place. He was all wobbly and flexed and bent. And so I'm sure I probably gave him every internal cue, chest up, stomach tight, squeeze your glutes, and nothing was working. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, I remembered that story. And I loved Superman as a kid growing up. And so I said to him, hey, as you lower to the bottom of that position, I want you to be in that flight position like Superman going off the top of the building, catching Lois Lane. Show me that Superman position. And he grabbed the dumbbells, and you could see the seriousness on his face. And Davey gets into it, bam, he just nails it, boom, boom, boom. Mm. And he gets up, and he gets up, and he has tears in his eyes. Mm. And he says, thank you. Oh. And so that little moment, 
don't get me wrong. It's not like I could have used the Superman cue again and again and again, Mm -hmm. but it just highlights something so powerful that we are not coaching movement. We are coaching people through movement and that there's a person inside of that player. And that if I truly listen to them, empathize, seek to understand, they will reveal their language, their life experiences, their likes, their dislikes, their wants, their needs, their why, their it, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, I can use that language if I'm an active listener, and I can then frame that language to take their personal familiar to teach them the unfamiliar through what we called analogies. And what it tells them is, wow, this person listens, they cares, and oh, by the way, I'm having a better learning experience for it. If those aren't the principles on which good relationships are based, I don't know what they are. Mm-hmm. And so I quickly realized that cues are far more the nudging movement, they're connecting people. Yeah. Wow. What a, what a powerful way to, to finish this podcast. That's a, that's a great story. I appreciate uh, you sharing that with us all, but, but yeah. uh, Nick, can you, can you, I mean, your, your work is fascinating. I can't thank you enough for, for all your time uh, this morning or, or evening there where you are, <laughs> but, but, but where can coaches learn more about you and your work, your new book? I mean, it just, I think yeah. coaches really will want to, to dig into this more. Yep. So, so my website is thelanguageofcoaching.com. So same as the name mm-hmm. of the book. And I'm doing monthly webinars and podcasts and things of that nature, all, all totally free. Only thing right now connected to my name has a cost is the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, outside of that, at Nick Winkleman, uh, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and constantly on a daily basis, just putting out short little ideas that can help coaches be better at what they do. So, yeah. Brilliant. Well, well, Nick, thank you once again. I really enjoyed this. I, I got a huge out of, amount out of it. I, I'm not coaching anymore, but um, if I ever do go back to coaching, I'll definitely be uh, putting these at the forefront of my mind. So thank you for that. Great. Thanks, David. Okay. It's an honor. Cheers. Bye bye. Bye bye.